Shalom. This is uh, June 20th, 2010, and this is an introductory lesson to study uh, we've entitled Tradition, uh, which is subtitled The Study in the Biblical Principles of Using Tradition. Before we get started, uh, let's pray. Blessed are you, Adonai our God, King of the universe, who has sanctified us with his commandments and has commanded us to engross ourselves in the words of Torah. Please, Adonai, our God, sweeten the words of your Torah in our mouth and in the mouth of your people, the family of Israel. May we and our offspring and the offspring of your people, the house of Israel, all of us know your name and study your Torah for its own sake. Blessed are you, Adonai, who teaches Torah to his people, Israel. Blessed are you, Adonai, our God, King of the universe, who selected us from all the peoples and gave to us his Torah. Blessed are you, Adonai giver of the Torah. Amen. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. 2 Timothy 3, 16-17. <clears throat> Notice how encompassing, uh, all-encompassing really scripture is. As Paul says here, that it provides what is necessary for every good work. What I'd like to do is start this study, uh, which will be focused on tradition, and uh, in which we will explore many extra-biblical passages, with this affirmation of Scripture as the only authoritative source. Paul doesn't tell Timothy that it's the only source, simply that it is the breathed-out source. This places it at the pinnacle of all of what we do. Uh, and it remains the only authority for what we do. But what does Scripture mean? What if Scripture's silent? What if it doesn't tell us how to do something? Those questions speak to the purpose of why uh, we're doing this study. You know, when we talk about tradition, modern man is often wary of tradition. At least what we see as tradition, what we call tradition. Uh, and it's exemplified in, in Fiddler on the Roof, in the character Tevye. He shows this modern difficulty. And, you know, in a way, it's very demeaning of tradition, uh, the, uh, the play and the movie is, in a way, because it shows tradition as uh, something that brings stability and continuity between generations. But as the play and as the movie uh, uh, show, uh, incorrectly in my view, um, that tradition's un- un- unable to answer the modern question. Messianic Judaism has that same uneasy relationship with tradition for different reasons. We experience unnecessary hurt and confusion because of a misunderstanding of the role of tradition in the life of a believer. Orthodox Judaism, or what we would recognize as Orthodox Judaism, uh, it is simply, uh, traditions are simply treated as previously unwritten commandments. Uh, the commandments that were given to Moses at Sinai, but that were not written down. The oral Torah, as it's, as it's uh, referred to. Perkeavot, which is in the Mishnah, Perkeavot 1.1 says, Moses received the Torah at Sinai and transmitted it to Joshua. Joshua to the elders, and the elders to the prophets, and the prophets to the men of the greatest, great synagogue. The latter used to say three things. Be patient in the administration of justice. Rear many disciples and make a fence around the Torah. That is uh, the Mishnah, Perkeavot 1.1, or chapters of the fathers. 
Judaism has, uh, uh, normative Judaism has used the traditions uh, handed down to them, received uh, from those who came before, as a means to uh, uh, provide continuity, uh, stability, unity, um, and it is evidenced in millennia of uh, those very things, uh, stability, unity. Um, how, can, how can Messianic Judaism benefit from tradition? If Yeshua was an anti-traditionalist, and this is, uh, this is what uh, many in the Messianic movement consider. Go to Matthew 15, uh, verse 1. We'll read to verse 9. Then the scribes and the Pharisees, who were from Jerusalem, came to Yeshua, saying, Why do your disciples transgress the tradition of the elders? So this is what we would, we would be referring to, this, these as per vote, that which was handed down and received. Why do your disciples transgress the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat bread. He answered and said to them, Why do you also transgress the commandment of God because of your tradition? For God commanded, saying, Honor your father and your mother. And he who curses father and mother, let him be put to death. But you say, Whoever says to his father or mother, Whatever profit you might have received from me is a gift of God, then he need not honor his father or mother. Thus you have made the commandment of God of no effect by your tradition. Hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy about you, saying, These people draw near to me with their mouth, and honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. We see this problem when we read uh, Matthew 15. Certainly when we go to Matthew 23 as well, Mark chapter 7, which is, a, which is the companion uh, passage to Matthew chapter 15. Not to get into the specifics of what this tradition was, washing hands or whatever else, certainly that's something uh, beyond this study. But more importantly, the view that some have because of this passage and because of Matthew 23 that somehow Yeshua was an anti-traditionalist. It's one of the things we're going to look at. Was Yeshua an anti-traditionalist? Was the, uh, were the first apostles anti-traditionalists? Is that a hallmark of those who, would, who are disciples of Yeshua? That we should be anti-traditionalists? You know, it's interesting because there really is a false notion regarding tradition. It, the false notion is that anyone could be tradition-free. Uh, there's, uh, it's, it's simply impossible. Uh, man and the culture of men uh, are always prone to pass on tradition through families, through, uh, through relationships uh, at, at work, through, uh, through relationships uh, with others who live nearby. Uh, we always, always have tradition. Like water, it flows to the lowest point. Tradition will always be there. The question is not whether we could, whether we uh, have believe in a tradition or not, or whether we practice traditions. The question is which traditions do we practice? The idea that you could be tradition-free in Messianic Judaism, the idea that you could be tradition-free, is really fostered by groups that despise what they call rabbinism. You know, this traditional Judaism, this rabbinism, as they call it. And whether it's in the church or in Messianic Judaism, those that despise a tradition or traditions have established a new tradition of their own. It is a tradition of non-traditionalism. 
Uh, some say that they want a pure relationship to the commandments. That's laudable, and I, I think that's uh, certainly my my motivation. I want a pure relationship to the commandments, not not clouded by uh, man-made instruments. But are we really are we really following uh, the commandments, or simply coming up with another set of man-made rules, a anti-traditionalist? set of man-made rules. You know, it really, it really appears to me that the anti-traditionalists is not as opposed to tradition as, mon, as, as much as they simply don't like rabbinic traditions. But is that how we want to be identified? If so, why? Is that what Yeshua wanted his disciples, how he wanted them to be identified as distinct or separate from rabbinic Judaism as distinct or separate from Israel. On the other hand, there's the traditionalist within Messianic Judaism who is quite arrogant in asserting that if someone doesn't keep the commandments in the traditional way, they're not actually being obedient or keeping the commandments. What's interesting to me is that both the anti-traditionalists and the traditionalists think that they are rightly handling scripture. They think it's all about scripture. If it were, and if it is, we need to dig deeper and find out who, which group, or which side of every argument is more accurately handling scripture. But what's interesting to me also is that there is a tradition for handling scripture. That's why they think they're handling scripture. Both sides, both opposing the traditionalists and the anti-traditionalists are both thinking that they're handling scripture. And they both then have a tradition of how one should handle scripture. Again, we cannot be tradition free. The Protestant Reformation is a perfect example of this idea where it's founded on the concept of sola scriptura. Sola scriptura means scripture alone. They opposed, they, they, they violently in some cases opposed uh, Roman Catholicism's uh, view that scripture could be added to, that church authority was equal to scripture. So they said, no, it's scripture alone. We get all of our source for life and for uh, obedience for doctrine, for reproof from Scripture alone. It certainly sounds laudable. It certainly sounds noble. And yet, this, the, the Protestant Reformation, interestingly enough, and it's borne out by the writings of John Calvin, by Martin Luther, and others early in the Reformation, they kept the hermeneutic tradition of the Roman Catholic Church. They, they did believe in what they called sola scriptura. The problem is how you read scripture determined what scripture said. And for that, they kept the same hermeneutic. They believed in a replacement theology, just like Roman Catholicism did. They read the scriptures in uh, spe- specifically the prophets and the uh, and and the prophecies regarding uh, regarding the uh, the Jewish people as being. Uh, a homily or being uh, metaphoric, not really meaning the Jewish people. So they inherited the very hermeneutic. The, the interesting thing about the word hermeneutic is it comes from uh, uh, the Greek 
god Hermes, uh, who was the interpreter of the gods, which uh, is, is nonsense. And it's interesting to me that what some of the most important courses in, in uh, Christian seminaries are, uh, are uh, studies in hermeneutics. How do we read scripture? It's probably a better way of referring to it. How we interpret what God is trying to sell it, tell us within his word. And one, of the, one of the principal ways, and I think it's lost on a lot of people, even in the Messianic movement, with regard to the, the uh, Protestant method of reading scripture, was that they, they assumed that Messiah and his apostles could add to or remove from the words of God. Now, Roman Catholicism came up, uh, came up with other methods. Uh, uh, as, as, we, as we've seen, they, they, they had uh, papal bulls uh, where the Pope could, uh, add, in certain, with certain restrictions, uh, uh, make statements uh, that became as valid or even in some cases more valid than Scripture itself, undoing Scripture. A perfect example is uh, uh, moving uh, the day of rest from uh, uh, the seventh day, or, or or in the Western calendar Saturday, to moving it to the first day, or in a Western calendar Sunday. Um, the Roman Catholic Church, in their catechism, said that uh, the that the uh, the day of rest, uh, the Sabbath, is the seventh day, but by papal decree, by church uh, by church doctrine, it was moved that God gave the authority to the Catholic Church to do this. Well, Protestantism opposes that idea, and yet they still believe that Jesus and his apostles could undo the commandments of God. What's different? Overall, what's different? Well, obviously, uh, Yeshua is different from the Pope. But overall, what's different? We're going we're to look at that as we, as we begin this study, as we go through this. We're going to begin to try and understand this idea of whether someone can add to or remove from the Word of God. It's certainly a, a principle that must be first established before we can begin to understand uh, how we can use or if we should use certain traditions. Within the Messianic movement, just like the contest between Protestants and Catholics in the days of the Reformation, within the Messianic movement, there's a contest. Some, who are like the Protestants, claim to be guided by sola scriptura, only scripture. They are anti-traditionalist Messianics. However, they still create their own traditions. We'll see. There's the other group. They're like the Catholics. They're the traditional Messianics that claim that their traditions are the only valid ones because they were handed down. They're more ancient. Which side's correct? Does it really matter? I mean, why don't we just hang out by ourselves and don't really care what other people do? I, do believe, I believe that it does matter, but it matters to Messiah Yeshua, and we're not meant to live in caves or to be all by ourselves. The Torah, it was meant to be lived in a community, interacting with others, adjusting our behavior first because of Scripture, but also out of love and a response to others. It matters to Yeshua. He wants his people to be united. This is the essence of John 17 and what some call his high priestly prayer where he prays that his people would be one as he and the Father are one. The primary cause of division or unity for any sociological group, any group of men and women and children is group customs. It's even more divisive or more unifying 
than group laws. Customs are a tremendous unifying factor or could be a tremendous divisive factor. And as a perfect example of this is found in first century Messianic Judaism. If we go to the book of Acts and, and, uh, and some of the epistles written uh, shortly thereafter, we're going to see that a primary, uh, a primary contest, a primary fight going on within the Messianic community uh, was uh, regarded the inclusion of Gentiles. Uh, normative Judaism uh, was, uh, was scandalized by the idea that Gentiles were allowed into, uh, into, into the fellowship of, uh, of fellow Jews. That same controversy, sadly, is present today in various groups in Messianic Judaism. Uh, various levels of Gentile inclusion are, are incorporated into group customs. Some groups want Gentiles to have their own level of observance and their own customs. They consider obedience to God's commandments as dependent, first of all, on genetic origin. Are you Jewish or not? And then on man-made traditions. How do you keep that? Whoa, you just took the bacon off your cheeseburger and called it kosher. Don't you know that cheeseburgers aren't kosher? That would be something that the traditionalist might say. This kind of a view is extremely divisive. It will ultimately cause the movement to fail if it doesn't stop. Here's some examples of, of the divisiveness and what it brings. Invariably, around Passover time, we have Messianics that are keeping different feast days. What day does Passover start on? They're counting the Omer on different days. Likewise, Shavuot falls on a different day. Likewise, uh, Rosh Hashanah, Yom Teruah, falls on a different day. Keeping a different day for Yom, uh, uh, Yom Kippur. A different time for the Feast of Tabernacles, Sukkot. Keeping different traditions regarding how one begins a Sabbath. These are divisive. What we eat, food standards. Oh no, I can't eat that. I can't, I'm sorry, I can't come eat at your home. Because you don't keep kosher like I do. The answer to the controversy is how we treat Scripture. Does Scripture have the supreme authority? How did Yeshua treat tradition? How did he treat Scripture? Did he give his disciples authority to add to or to overturn Scripture? This idea that Yeshua, or Jesus, was an anti-traditionalist is really cemented and really became a part of the, the question part of the discussion with the Protestant Reformation. The Protestant Reformation assumed that Jesus was just like them. That he wanted to overturn traditions. So they saw the traditions of the Catholic Church and they said, we're like that. We're trying to overturn the traditions. They saw Jesus overturning the Pharisee, Pharisaic traditions. So the Pharisees were equal to the Catholics. So Rabbinic Judaism, who are the inheritors of the Pharisees. Rabbinic Judaism is like the Roman Catholics. Uh, many people who are opposed to Roman Catholic traditions when they come into the Messianic movement find themselves equally uh, disgusted by Jewish traditions. In that, they form their own tradition. An anti-traditionalist tradition. 
Was Yeshua an anti-traditionalist? Did he really overturn all the Pharisaic traditions? Was he opposed to them? What we want to determine in this study is why he accepted some traditions, and he does, and yet seems to reject others. What is the difference? Why does he do that? Can we determine which method, uh, can we determine which traditions, can we determine how he goes about determining if a tradition is beneficial or harmful? What our study is going to do is focus on some primary Jewish traditions that either enhance or detract from unity. Invariably, when we talk about the idea of tradition, some, specifically the anti-traditionalists, thinks that it's all about purity. That, the, that a pure doctrine requires that we not accept tradition. I have to say, the Torah teaches purity and unity. It's not enough simply to be right and all by yourself, which many Messianics are content with. There is wisdom in the counsel of many. Those in Messianic Judaism are fragmented for several reasons that I see. The first is the divine plan. I do believe that, that Hashem has called us individually across the globe simply by the simplicity of His Word. That He's not called us by a teacher or by a group but simply as individuals, like seed planted across rows, seemingly for no purpose. Well, I believe it's the divine plan that we've been scattered as we have been. But in addition to that, I believe that messianic, uh, messianic believers are also eclectic. Uh, sometimes we're not very good team players. We've always thought for ourselves. We've always done our own digging for truth and haven't easily accepted it from others. That's not good. It's, it's not the way that it's supposed to be. We have sometimes self-imposed exile. Some are suspicious of anything that they think is, quote, rabbinic. So really a form of, it's a subtle form of anti-Semitism driven by conspiracy theories that there's some massive rabbinic cover-up. Some arrogantly assume that they know better the millennia of wise men and sages. That they can be less biased and that they have better resources and better information than thousands of years of people who have dedicated every waking hour to studying and keeping the commandments. Anti-Rabbinism is a dangerous and ultimately hurtful to the kingdom of Messiah. Paul thought so too. Paul said in Romans 3, 1 through 2, what advantage, what advantage then has the Jew, or what is the profit of circumcision? Much in every way, chiefly because to them were committed the oracles of God. Thousands of years of wisdom should not be so easily discarded. The sages of traditional Judaism have much to teach us, even if we do not 
treat all of their words as authoritative. They have much to teach us. And it is a lack of humility. And I think a subtle anti-Semitism that rejects things simply because they come from a rabbinic source. But then there's the authority of the text. Turn to Deuteronomy 30, verses 10 through 14. If you obey the voice of Adonai your God, to keep his commandments and his statutes, which are written in this book of the law, and if you turn to Adonai your God with all your heart and with all your soul, for this commandment which I command you today is not too mysterious for you, nor is it far off. It is not in heaven that you should say, Who will ascend into heaven for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it? Nor is it beyond the sea that you should say, Who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it? But the word is very near you, in your mouth and in your heart, that you may do it. That's Deuteronomy 30, 10-14. Paul quotes this in Romans chapter 10. God speaks in plain language. He speaks in the language of men. He speaks in order to be understood. He speaks in order to be obeyed. He does not hide himself in his word. Those who seek him, those who open with a heart to read and do, will find him, and it is plainly visible. Any way that we read, any hermeneutic that obscures the plain meaning of the text, as that would have been understood by the original hearers, is contrary to the revelation of Scripture, contrary to what Deuteronomy 30 is teaching. Let me say that again. Anything that obscures the plain meaning of the text, as it would have been understood by the original hearers, is contrary to the revelation of Scripture. Scripture contains all the authority that is needed. The how sometimes is missing. But all the authority is found within Scripture. This study, I hope, will teach us how we can determine the how when Scripture does not speak specifically to it. Although we don't recognize, although I personally do not recognize the authority of writings outside of Scripture, we do understand that those that spoke and lived the language of the original hearers are best able to give us the ear that we need to hear the plain words of Scripture. If you don't know the language, if you don't know the idioms, if you don't know the method of speaking that the original hearers had, then you can't know what it's saying. He does speak in the language of men. His Holy Spirit does illuminate what is written. But it is illuminated in light of those who heard it first. To adapt it, to make it say something different or opposite of what the original hearers heard is treating the Bible, treating Scripture as if it were a Ouija board where it could be made to say anything that, the, that what you think the Spirit wants to say, say. We must understand that God has written, He has provided His Word written in the language of men, that it is written to be understood, and that it is understood 
by, the, by knowing how the original hearers would have heard it. We are going to reference extra-biblical texts as we go uh, through this study. We will be relying upon the Mishnah and the Talmud. I do want to give those who don't have, an, have a, uh, a uh, background in using or studying the Mishnah and the Talmud, which are almost like climbing a mountain if you don't have that background. I'd like to give you some sort of background on the Mishnah. Not so that you can, in the Talmud, not so that you can treat them as authoritative, but that's so that you can learn to hear, learn to read the language. And I'm not talking about the language of Aramaic or Hebrew or Greek. I'm speaking of the language, the way that the, that the writers, that the original hearers thought as they wrote. The apostolic scriptures, what some people call the New Testament, Matthew through Revelation, were not written by Greek men. These scriptures were not written down by men who were, who were studied in Plato and Socrates. That's what, Christian, that's what Christian seminaries seem to be teaching. But that's not the truth. The truth is it was written by men who were Orthodox Jews of the day, of the first century. And with the possible exception of Luke, all of them were born in the culture and in the language of first century Judaism, not third century Christianity. To understand the apostolic scriptures, we need to understand how Jews of the first century thought and listened and heard and read scripture. The best way to do that is by reading extant texts that can give us background, background that can both improve our ability to discern the meaning of the apostolic scriptures. And also, it validates the very apostolic scriptures that we're reading. A perfect example is in the concept of, of uh, what is received, which we will get into as we begin to study. Those things that are received, those traditions. How the apostolic scriptures treat tradition is remarkably similar to how the Mishnah and the Talmud treat tradition. This gives, this gives credibility. This gives uh, even greater uh, uh, believability to the apostolic scriptures. The Mishnah was compiled about 200 of the common era. As we've seen, the Mishnah is, is claimed to have come traditionally from Moses orally, uh, spoken to Joshua, and spoken to the prophets, and then to the men of the great assembly, that would be Ezra, etc., about the 5th century BCE, before the Common Era. It's probably more likely, though, that the majority of the teachings came about, came about in the latter part of the Second Temple period, just before the 1st just before the, uh, the, uh, century Common Era, and after the Temple was destroyed, they were expanded upon by the compilers of the Mishnah in the 2nd century. The compilers of the Mishnah, we would recognize that although Judah the Prince is the one that is credited with writing the Mishnah down, that is, writing the... Uh, Mishnah means to be repeated, uh, or a text to be repeated, uh, that which was memorized. So it's writing down. There was a feeling uh, that uh, because of the after the second uh, Jewish revolt, uh, beginning about 132, ending in about 135 of the Common Era, uh, that that 
Judaism was scattered to the four winds, the diaspora, that, that there would be this oral tradition would be lost. And so they put to writing it down. However, it was not writing down of, of everything that Judah, Hanasi, Judah the prince, and, and 200 of the common area, considered, or what he remembered. Rather, it, was, it, it seems to have been more based upon um, writings or compiling of works of men before him. Specifically, Rabbi, Rabbi Meir, and there's a tradition in the Talmud that teaches us that uh, in the Mishnah, when something is unattributed, when it doesn't mention who it, who it comes from, that it was, in fact, the teaching of Rabbi Meir. Um, and uh, also, Rabbi Meir's uh, 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 leader, he was a disciple of Rabbi Akiva. So we, we recognize who would have been in the early 2nd century. So we recognize that the, the Mishnah is most likely a compi- compilation of traditions that existed that were... Uh, in the Second Temple period, and then also uh, elucidated and added to or clarified by those uh, in the Second Century. Then it was written down. The Mishnah is written in Hebrew. It's called Mishnaic Hebrew because it differs from the Scriptural Hebrew. Uh, it is very concise. It is often what people describe to be difficult to read and understand. English tra- translations do a much better job. However, be- because it is very concise, it includes. It, it has to include many. Uh, added words, or what would be considered a dynamic uh, translation. Putting it in English uh, would have to add a lot to be able to, to get the context. Um, it is actually a difficult book to read in its original source. It contains ethical teaching and practical interpretation for scripture. It also contains a little bit of agada, or, or storytelling. It's divided into six orders. Um, the six orders, each order has multiple tractates. There's a total of 63 tractates. The, of these 63 tractates, uh, the Mishnah then is, 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 is quite big. Um, and we see that as the men after the Mishnah, after the uh, 200 of the common era, began to study the Mishnah, uh, sometimes the Mishnah would, will make quotes or a teach a teaching that is attributed to a, to a previous person. Um, however, will not include scripture uh, often. So what you find in the studies of those people that came after them when they studied the Mishnah is they would want to know, well, where, where did this come from? What is the scripture that this comes from? This is called the Gemara, or that which is added, uh, that which is uh, uh, discussed on the Mishnah. The Gemara, the Mishnah, for the most part, the Talmud is the, the Mishnah plus the Gemara, the discussion. So it's, in a way, it's, a, it's the Mishnah plus commentary makes up the Talmud. So within the Talmud, you will find the complete Mishnah. However, the Talmud does not contain all of the commentary on the Mishnah. So all, not all the tractates of the Mishnah are covered. The most complete Talmud, there are two Talmuds, the most complete Talmud, is uh, the Babylonian Talmud. Now, it's called the Babylonian Talmud because it was compiled by uh, Jews living in the diaspora after the destruction of uh, Jerusalem, after the destruction of, uh, in, the, in the Second Jewish Revolt, in uh, 135 of the Common Era. That, uh, and plus, in addition to that, many remained in Babylon during the uh, Second Temple period rather than returning to the land. Judaism was thriving in Babylon. And so the Babylonian Talmud uh, really had the best opportunity to be most complete. 
it was it was completed. I shouldn't say completed, but it was finished, never added to after 500 of the Common Era. So the Babylonian Talmud is the is the most complete of the of the commentary on the Mishnah. Uh, it began around 200 and was uh, finished, not added any longer, around 500 of the Common Era. What's called the Jerusalem Talmud. Uh, which is a misnomer because actually it was being written when Jeru- after Jerusalem was destroyed. It was compiled actually in, in uh, northern Israel. It was a discussion. Uh, it was commentary on the Mishnah uh, that was completed about 350 of the Common Era, so the 4th century. What the Talmuds represent is a... Because they go back and, and first of all, they quote from the Mishnah and they even go back further. They, they, they quote and they... Uh, build on teachings that were from before the first century, the Talmud represents a 600-year Bible study with generations speaking to each other. We'll have sages from one generation being debated by sages from another generation. So it is a marvelous, marvelous, rich uh, document in teaching us how people of the first and second centuries and on considered the scriptures. How they looked at the traditions of the Mishnah, the teachings of the Mishnah, and tried to find the scriptural authority to support them. Or to, maybe not to debate, not to discount them, but to debate them. The Talmud is filled with opposing opinions. Both Talmuds are written in Aramaic. However, because they contain the Mishnah, uh, they also have the Hebrew in the Mishnah portion. Both Talmuds, although they are Aramaic, uh, the Jerusalem Talmud uses what's called a Western Aramaic, which is much older, a little bit more difficult to read. It's one of the reasons why the uh, Jerusalem Talmud, is, or Yerushalami as it's called, is very difficult to find in an English language. It is actually, it's a very, it's the minority Talmud. It's not studied as in depth as the Babylonian Talmud. Uh, for our uh, for our study uh, in this uh, in tradition, we will we will be primarily using the Babylonian Talmud, and as far as the Mishnah, we'll be primarily using the uh, the Babylonian Talmud's uh, um, English translation of the Mishnah. We have some a few exceptions we'll use. We talk about English translations of the Talmud. It's something that is uh, actually only. Uh, in, in the last uh, 150 years uh, available at all. But one of the oldest translations, English translations of the Babylonian Talmud is the Rodkinson. Uh, it, is, uh, it is a very bad translation. It's the one that you will normally find if you do a Google search for, ba- uh, for Talmud. It's a very bad translation. It's, uh, it should be avoided. Uh, it really is, is uh, I find no benefit at it at all. The best English translation is the Sonsino Talmud, which was uh, finished in the 1960s. Um, it is uh, technically uh, not technically is not under uh, copyright uh, currently under copyright. So uh, it is it is becoming more available on the internet. You may be able to find sites. It is my goal that sometime during the study of tradition that I will be able to provide uh, anyone who wants a an electronic copy of the Babylonian Talmud. Certainly uh, all of the 63 tractates of the Mishnah as well uh, in an English translation, and hopefully be able to do that. Um, in God's strength uh, sometime soon uh, so that you'll have it. However, within the study, those pertinent portions of the Talmud and the Mishnah will be included in text, and that's one of the reasons why we're doing this study is so that those who do not have the background of studying the Mishnah or or the Talmud will be able to uh, still benefit 
from, uh, from those uh, rich sources in determining uh, the, the scriptural basis for various traditions. And we talk about uh, how we go through this study. I have opinions on various traditions. Uh, I use a lot of, uh, of the, uh, what people would call the rabbinic tradition, traditions. Um, I am, in some regards, uh, quite uh, orthopraxic. That doesn't mean that um, I keep them all or use them all. But because I come from that position, those of uh, you who are studying and that come from a more anti-traditionalist perspective, you, you may get angry with me. Uh, I want you to know that to the best of my ability, I'll try to remain um, neutral uh, unless it's something that pertains directly to Scripture. Uh, no one is neutral. We all have our biases. And remember that those who are not Traditionalists have a tradition themselves. It's more their own tradition or one they've inherited from other anti-traditionalists. But it's okay for us not to agree on all these things. We're not looking for uniformity. We are not trying to establish a, uh, a, uh, a center or a, uh, a basis for all Messianic Judaism to look and act the same. What we're really trying to do is establish a systematic approach to tradition. We are not trying to be more original. We are not trying to be more traditional or less traditional. We simply have one goal. It's unity. How can we use tradition in a way that brings unity to the disciples of Messiah? Unity with whom? Well, first of all, obviously with each other, but also with greater Israel. Unity with Israel is a goal that we have in this study. We will not allow, however, our goal of unity cause us to compromise on purity, pure doctrine. We simply want to be identified with the singular people of God. There is no salvation apart from Israel. We're family. We need to look and act like family. Paul said in Romans 11.28, for those of us that are anti-traditionalists, sometimes Paul's words support our opposition to all things Pharisaic or rabbinic. But Paul's words in Romans 11.28 should cause us to drop short Concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But concerning the election, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. We need to be very careful when we reject a tradition that we're not rejecting it because its source is rabbinic Judaism. Let's close and pray. We thank you, O Adonai, our God, that you have established our portion with those who dwell in the study hall. Have you, not, you have not established our portion with idlers, for we arise early and they arise early. 
We arise early for words of Torah, and they arise early for idle words. We toil and they toil. We toil and receive reward, and they toil and do not receive reward. We run, and they run. We run to the life of the world to come, and they run to the pit of destruction. As it is written, And you, O God, you will lower them into the well of destruction. Men of bloodshed and deceit shall not live out half their days. But as for me, I will trust in you. Shalom. Mm-hmm.